This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Adela Brianzo, and I'm currently the publishing assistant at NIAS Press, Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen. I'm not here for much longer, but I have the great pleasure of recording one last podcast before I leave. We have here with us today, Rosalie Stolz. Rosalie Stolz is a guest lecturer at the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology in Berlin's Freie University. Her research focuses on Southeast Asia and in Laos in particular, and specializes in houses, kinship, sociality, and socioeconomic change. She has authored the book, Living Kinship, Fear and Spirits, which is about to be published by Nia's Press. And actually the last details have been finalized as we speak, which we all find very exciting. And the book will be available in early March. We have invited Stolz here today to speak about her book, Kinship and Spirits. Hi, Rosalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Adela. So you're here to speak about your book, about your research. We'll be talking about kinship and spirits. Maybe a natural first question would be to talk about the title of this book, Why Live in Kinship? So the work focuses on kinship and sociality. Which role does the everyday play in the book? Why live in kinship? Yes, why live in kinship? Well, we could say it's actually redundant to speak of living kinship because, well, what should kinship be if not lived? But perhaps I want to stress something with this term, which is giving a stress on how kinship is lived in everyday practice, as you just mentioned. And this is quite important. Perhaps I should give a bit background here. So the Gamu, as an upland group in northern Laos, as you just mentioned, often the upland groups are described as having particular kinship principles. And this is something that you're aware of, of course, when you go to the field. And here with regard to the Gamu, but not only to them, it's often mentioned that they have, for instance, this kind of matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. I know a really complicated term, which basically means that kin groups are differentiated and that they have particular relations towards each other. And here it's wife-givers and wife-takers. So that kin groups stand in particular wife-giving, wife-taking relationships towards each other, which does not mean it's only about exchanging brides or women, so giving wives or taking them. It's also connected to all spheres of life, in fact. So we have this matrilateral cross-cousin a marriage, also patrilineal descent, so that is the transmission of belonging through the male line, and also the concept of the house, not only as an architectural object, physical object, but also as something that constitutes a house group, which is a group of persons not only simply living together by accident or so, that this is really a social and cosmological unit that ideally, and in fact very often, also cooperate economically. And so we have all these terms and principles described in the literature and so on. So, but how do they actually are put into practice? How does it work? What does it mean? So these were quite open questions that I had when entering the field. And you could think that given all these kinship principles that when you're born, you are already born in a wide web of kin. You have a lot of wife takers, wife givers, co-king group members, house group members and so on. But when you observe the daily practice, you find out that a lot of it do is made about really putting kinship relations into practice, living them, working on them, not only exchanging gifts, but really it means also really cooperating in work acts in order to produce really enacted kin ties, which are also efficacious. And I speak here of 
the efficacy of kinship, which means in the end that you really have committed kin, kin that are there for you when you have larger rituals to be undertaken, that you have, let's say, healing rituals, for instance, for your child that is sick, you need then wife givers to conduct particular ritual acts in order for your child to recover. So I want to, want to stress here is the people really have a stake in it. So whatever larger undertaking in life you want to do, you really need these committed kin ties. It's not necessary just to have them because you're born into a web of kin, but it's a necessary condition, of course, but not sufficient yet. So you have really a lot of things to do in everyday life. And cosmological dimension is also quite important. Um, one of the examples that I gave give at the beginning is uh, concerning mortuary rites idea of becoming an ancestor spirit is really quite a very important prospect that you have also later in life. And in order to become an ancestor spirit, you need to have a complex set of mortuary rights. And a lot of people need to be involved. And this requires you to have these activated kin ties beforehand and also to have a lot of resources, as it's called, to feed the guests, to feed the helpers. So these resources themselves are not just the product of your own success in rice cultivation, but also that you have a lot of kin that help you doing this. So this is um, connected. Kin ties are very much connected to economic uh, activities, as well as also to then establishing a mode of existence. So there are persons who don't have these large set of activated kin ties, don't have resources in this amount that they need them for these mortuary rights, and they will then simply, buried simply, um, a pit blah locally called, which means that you won't become an ancestor spirit then. So you will, as they say, um, you will be dead forever, handu, they call it. And this is not really a nice prospect. It's also not necessarily a tragedy, but this is something that the people really have a stake in. I would want to stress here again. So it's quite important throughout life and not only focusing at the beginnings of life in our anthropological study, but also at the end of life. Um, this is something that the people really consider uh, when they engage with other um, throughout their life. Living kinship is quite important, yes. Yeah, it sounds like we're talking about a really practical way of looking at kinship, right? It's not uh, up in the clouds, a theoretical approach, but a really, as you said, active kinship. I find that really fascinating. A lot of books on Laos and, and mainland Southeast Asia would focus rather on the political, environmental sort of areas of life. I mean, you've talked a lot about kinship already, but there is, is there a particular way in which you came into kinship and why focusing in this topic in Laos? Yeah, you're right. A lot of books really focused rather on what politics and environmental relations. And I think it's totally fine and it's really pertinent. Also, this uh, case of the Gamu. I'm focusing on the setting of the village that I call Blea. Of course, in fact, it's not really called Blea. Blea means beautiful. This is a village that, of course, could also be described, for instance, through a political ecological lens. So focusing on how far the state or other actors really influence the ways in which the people can engage with their livelihood and political economic factors. So this is also important here. We have encroaching plantations. A large tracts of the local forest are regarded as conservation forests. Uh, cash crops are promoted. And we all know regarding upland groups that upland shifting cultivation, for instance, should rather have been a thing of the past and it isn't. And so this is also, of course, all very pertinent. But still, let me say, kinship 
is a topic that has been to some extent neglected. We still should look to kinship because it's not so unconnected to these questions, as I mentioned, also of rice cultivation, for instance, or economic decision making. Livelihoods are not only about instrumental decisions or economic decision making purely, they are also about kinship. So even the people, this does not mean that kinship is a thing of the past. Most of my interlocutors, I wouldn't describe as traditionalists or looking to the past, but rather future oriented and well, looking to the present and the future, but also with kinship as one well, important point in their life and also sociality, of course. So one example perhaps is an interlocutor who built one of the first houses in which concrete was involved. So a very modern aspirational house, one of the first houses, so a lot of people were interested in it, curiously observing it, and a lot of speculation went on, how is this house going to be inaugurated? Because house inauguration and so on, all important kinship matters. And it seemed like he was critical towards some ritual practices that involve a lot of alcohol consumption, for instance. And in the end, when this house inauguration took place, well, this was really kinship practice. A lot of wife givers were involved and wife takers, the wife giver made the hearth. So this is something that I describe here in the book. So that means even such an aspirational house really requires, for instance, the hearth to be made by the wife giver, not by anyone else. So kinship is part of the picture. Another example perhaps is, is rice cultivation, as I mentioned. It's often mentioned that shifting cultivation of upland rice is something that is resilient, it's still there, even though it shouldn't. And this might be, of course, connected to food security, so that you really have good harvests. But this is one side of the picture. The other side is uh, one side of the coin. The other side is, again, kinship and sociality. I and mean, I give this example of the rice mother in the rice harvesting rituals. And this is based not only on my attention, so that I thought this to be important, and I saw kinship everywhere. So this was not initially my bias in this case, but really we talked about rice cultivation harvest, a, women, a few women and I, and one woman told me, uh, let me tell you something. Nang Sali, she said, so my, one of the ways in which others refer to me, she told me, we love our rice like we love our children. And I thought, well, is she perhaps overstating here something or so but the others fell in and said yes these are our children in fact so the barn is full of our children so they were joking of course also but there is some truth to it so this thinking of the rice when it's ripening of course not from the beginning as having a soul and then being a child is something that is really to be taken seriously so I would describe it also in the book how I accompanied rice mothers um not all are doing this. And of course, there is a lot of variation regarding these rituals. But I described two particular houses uh, where I accompanied them, the rice mother. And they really tried to bring the rice child that is assumed to be on the upland field to take it home to the village and to the barn. And this is really, there are really similarities in the gestures, in the way they speak to the rice child that you, of course, cannot see, that are similar to the way in which you call children appease them, try to allure them to come back with you. And uh, this is, I think, when women who think about, well, I should leave rice, upland rice cultivation behind because it's so much exhausting work. I should perhaps focus rather on the red rice fields if they have some. Of course, there are always limitations. Then this question of 
whether there is a relationship that one leaves behind is also quite important. These rituals are particularly women's rituals. And these are parts of the reason why they think shifting cultivation of upland rice is still important because of the rice child. And this cannot be compensated by cash crops or wet rice fields. So I think this is something that we should consider more deeply. But yeah, you're right. Um, kinship is one of the topics that I started from the beginning with. So that was my focus. I was not there to study only rural transformations, but I was aware of them, of course. Um, and I ask myself, is kinship something that is really out there and so important, just like the ritual question I just mentioned? Or is it something that I try to see everywhere just because I'm trained to do so or interested in it? And so I was really self-critical. And always, uh, let's say, open to find out that this is something that is really of the past. And yeah, I can only say it again. It's really a thing of the present and it's quite important. Let's move on to talk about the practicalities of fieldwork, which I think is something really peculiar about your fieldwork since it was even more immense, immersive than usual. So just for context, Rosalie Stolz brought her husband and child along to her field site for months. Now, this is not all too rare in fieldwork and in social sciences. And in fact, Nia Spurs does have a book called Fieldwork in China with Kids. It's edited by Candice Cornett and Tammy Blumenfeld. And you would find a lot of similar experience to that of Rosalie here. But I was wondering, would you, would you say that this had an impact in your research? Yeah, thank you. And thank you also for pointing out this book. This is really a nice one for everyone who thinks about bringing perhaps even small children to the field and feeling unsure about it. So it's really useful also if you're not focusing on, on China. So yeah, well, the impact of my bringing the family to the field. Yes, it had from the beginning it had impacts. Um, and I think not only that, this has impacts the mode in which you enter the field, either as a married or not yet married person, it always has an impact. So this term of positionality that have been discussing already a while always plays a role but when you bring your family to the field and when you're then also up to studying kinship and sociality this is something that you should of course be particularly attentive to and I think it really has merits to do so because it's not only a question of practicalities which you consider of course a lot beforehand so what should I bring, health issues and so on. But it really impacts from the beginning the kind of research that you do. And this came also as, well, I didn't, I think much more about the practical issues because it was my first long-term fieldwork and then with a the family, my son was two years old when we went to Laos, became three years old in the field. So these were, of course, all the things uh, regarding our security, not really, but health issues mainly were at the forefront of my thoughts. But then I started to think about also the impact it had also not only on the methodology, but rather in the ways that people related to me. And one story is how I first talked to the hatman of the village that I chose to conduct research in. So I thought about a lot of different issues also when contacting the village hatman, which had to do rather with political topics. So it's perhaps sensitive, a foreign scholar coming here in a Gamu village. Do I gain access to the village at the beginning even? And it turned out that all these political topics or sensitive topics were not really important for him, but he switched quite quickly to the topic of where could we be housed because he was aware I was going to stay there with my husband and my son and the problem was rather well where should we live and I thought well perhaps this is a polite way of getting rid of me pretending that there is no space to house me 
Although I saw, of course, a lot of houses, but this was not the point. The, later, it turned out that it was really the problem that if you already are a house group and with a husband and a son I was, already was, I couldn't be housed or we couldn't be housed in another family house due to also cosmological reasons in the sense of the house spirits that might not be fond of us staying there like invaders or so. So there was, well, a place, a neutral place, so to say, had to be found of us for, for us that could be our house. And it turned out that it would be then a workhouse. Workhouse is a term that has been used already for the Gemuyuan that I stick to. So it's not to be confused with this British institution where poor and destitute people have been sent. But this is rather a smaller house, which is open for the public, for foreigners, mobile vendors, for instance, who stay for a couple of days in the village. And it's also, especially the outside space, uh, where you have also a bench for a meeting place, a hang around place for hanging around for neighbors and so on. And we were going to stay there. And we actually moved in. It's quite a small house. And with the time, it really was not called anymore a workhouse, a chong, but it was referred to with a house, a local term for the word house, to gang. So we really, with time passing, we became, so to say, part of a king group, not fully. We didn't buy ourselves skin like is locally done to really ritually enter a king group. Um, but we were, with time passing, regarded as being part, uh, with also consequences, with res responsibilities and so on, as being part of a king group. So we, we were regarded, I was regarded as an adult person. Um, what I just said is, sounds all quite nice, you gain access, but we should also critically discuss or examine uh, reflexively in how it not only allows you access, but perhaps also limits, because it should not be used simply for enhancing your ethnographic authority or credibility, <laughs> um, but it also, of course, has shortcomings. It means you to position, means you that you can gain access in some spheres or to some people, and limits your access to others. And in my case, uh, among the Gamu, these are young people. So the village youth, one of the main markers of the village youth is that they are quite independent from adults. So when they are hanging around among themselves, enjoying themselves, they want, of course, to be beyond the earshot and sight of adults. And this is one of the privileges, I think, of youth among the Camus. So they have, of course, a lot of work. They have to shoulder also a lot of burdens of work, uh, additional to schooling or replacing schooling sometimes. Um, but the nice thing is that because of also they contribute so much to the house economy, they are granted a certain amount of freedom. And so it was not really appropriate for me to hang around with them. And we wouldn't have felt easy. So the young people and I, of course, I came across them, but from the position of being an adult. Um, so being involved in a certain way, of course, allows you to see some things and not to gain so much access in others. Um, but it definitely impacts the way in which your research unfolds. Because basically, I think fieldwork is a relational encounter. It's all about social ties. And this is something that I, at some points in the book, explicitly reflect on. But the story I just mentioned is part of another volume I edited together with colleagues on being a parent in the field. And sometimes it's not explicitly mentioned. So this monograph is not a book about myself. It's not an autoethnography. It's also not a book about doing fieldwork. It's, in the end, it's an ethnography on the Gamuyuan um, with a focus on kinship and sociality. But you always write from some position. So there is no view 
from nowhere you're always in a way you have a certain perspective and positionality that holds true actually also for the local practices of kinship as well yeah, it's fascinating i think we could talk about field work for hours without end but let's move on to talk about spirits because they are after all part of the title of your book so just a reminder live in kinship fear and spirits we have spoken about kinship so far but what do spirits have to do with this book Oh, well, <laughs> a lot of things. So to some extent, as I mentioned already, regarding mortuary rites, persons might become spirits after their life. And this is something that the people have in mind. So ancestor spirits, house spirits are actually everywhere. Not all houses have spirits, but uh, those in which someone has already died and rituals have taken place have. And this is something that you always have to consider how you move along in houses. So for instance, you cannot simply enter any house. I was also, of course, uh, thinking about it and you meet rather outside, for instance, or you behave in a certain way. You cannot eat, uh, for instance, with others at a table because this might resemble a particular ritual from the house spirit's perspective and might have negative consequences because they might be expected to be fat, which they would not, of course, and well the anger of the spirits you do not want to experience. So, of course, at certain points, spirits were um, prominent, um, although, which does not mean that the people are totally uncritical or don't have doubts. Sometimes um, you might come across interlocutors who say, well, all they talk about spirits. Do you see any spirits? No. Mm. But this does not mean that they are not considered as an effective force that is there. So they still wouldn't enter any house and eat there at the table. So this is a kind of reality that the people navigate with. So it has relevance with regard to kinship, but also to sociality in the sense of, for instance, the village spirits that are there, but also a lot of spirits connected to the wilderness, spirits that are not human they are quite different from humans. They are amorphous or rather like spirit forces uh, that you have to consider them. And I also focus in the book on the topic that I call witchcraft, which is witchcraft here in the sense of an involuntary possession by a tiger spirit, which you might not even be aware of. So one of us could be already possessed by a tiger spirit. And this tiger spirit uses the humans that they possess as a vector in order to feed on other humans. So they really use it, to say, so to say, for feeding. And this is a reality I wasn't aware at the beginning, that this is taking place, is important, even in the present day, in the contemporary, and also in that village. At the beginning, it was assumed to be or often presented to me as a topic that has been of relevance in the past or in other areas and not there. With the passing of time, it came aware of the fact that this is really a kind of intimate thing that the people are quite aware of. And this is something that takes place also inside the village, which is, I discuss it also as an antithesis, so to say, of sociality. So in some regards, the sociality on the village level is presented as something that is good and all are sharing and interacting quite harmoniously and so on. But there are in fact a lot of differences. And the witchcraft is a way in which um, sociality is really um, is really put into question, which 
means basically you shouldn't eat other humans. And what the witch does, for instance, is to feed on other humans. So this is, witchcraft is a reality of its own. I don't want to say this is an expression of a conflict uh, or so, um, a function of which has actually a social explanation. This is for locals really in a reality that they have to navigate along and which is really threatening to some extent. So this is something that you come across and you have, of course, to position yourself. Sometimes you, a lot of taboo are there in place. Taboos are a way of, of managing the relation to ties and uh, to, to spirits and also to avoid certain negative consequences. And so we were also asked whether we should stick to taboos. And at the beginning, of course, there was a question, well, we are Falang, for instance, shall we really take care of all these taboos? Do they apply also for us? But a lot of people actually were, there were stories about also immigrants that are not Gamu, who did not observe the taboos and then really fell off the motorbike, for instance, had other accidents. And so we also stick to it. And the potential negative consequences it might have were really also a point that was an argument also among the Camus themselves that spirits really might exist. They are really a reality that you have to figure out. And this is not only a question of belief that we might assume to be belief, but for instance, a way of locally in which you stress the relationship between humans and spirits is not believing in spirits. It's a term to fear the spirits, which is why I use also fearing the spirits as a title. Uh, of course, um, this is not an only negative fear. It means also respectfully fearing the potency of spirits okay so it's definitely not just kinship this spirits do have a lot to do with your fieldwork experience and with your research and, and and obviously in the book as well now you've mentioned here there are different anecdotes or stories or experiences you had in the field with real people who who became your informants during that period so to anyone who reads the book it becomes really obvious that the style Uh, of your writing includes a lot of these vignettes and these stories. Why do you favor this type of writing? To some extent, the only possible way I could find about it, but of course, also I thought about it. And especially when much more time passes since the field, it's much more easy for you to generalize some field experiences and uh, to edit them, so to say, because also your memory vanishes and all the messiness of the situation themselves that you encounter in the field with all these potential contradictions. And um, there is not only one view on, on the matters, especially when you're not focusing on interviews and focusing only on key specialists to tell you how, well, how everything is related and what is the meaning of particular riches. But when you try to focus also on normal interlocutors, so to say, to get really an impression also of the variation of the different viewpoints that people have, the different stakes that people have in it, then this is something that really pushes you, I think, in the direction of having a narrative approach, because this allows you to also capture the contingencies, which means really by accident you are there in a certain situation or you're not, and also the perspective that you have. For instance, in, in some situation, as I just mentioned, you're not there as a neutral person, just a person or so. You're there as a representative of a certain house. In some situations, this is foregrounded. In ritual situations, it's quite clear. Everything depends on whether you're wife giver or wife taker, where you sit, what you want to say, whom you give a gift of rice liquid first and so on. In some situations, It's quite more informal. Kinship relations are not so much foregrounded, but all these practices of sociality and so they really, to capture this, I think the narrative approach is really quite important. And also to allow the interlocutors 
a way to escape also your totalizing gaze. So I'm quite critical of really giving authoritative description in a particular way that does not allow for all these shades, the complexity of the characters. The persons change. They also grow older with time. You as well. So also they have different viewpoints, perhaps even contradictory experiences or attitudes. So in order, you cannot really capture them in full as with a totalizing gaze, as I just said. So the way I wanted to write it is in a way that allows the reader to have a look over my shoulder at some points, to have perhaps develop a more fuller understanding of the situation also with the qualities it has, with the feelings that one has an ethnographer or the tension involved in some situations and so on. And also to allow the reader to recognize that the interlocutors or what I see is seen through a particular perspective at a particular moment in time and allowing the understanding, recognizing that the interlocutors described here are really full multi-faceted persons and we only get particular glimpses and some things we never see, we might not even understand, which I think is then true not only to one's own fieldwork because it always has shortcomings and it's always written from a certain point of view, but it's also true to the fact that the interlocutors are really persons that are living out there. Thank you so much, Rosalie. You've been uh, wonderful. Thank you for coming for the Nordic Asia podcast. Rosalie Stolz is a researcher who researches kinship and sociality among the commune in northern Laos. Thank you for coming today. Thank you, Adele. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you to our listeners for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I have been Adela Prianso, and I have been talking to Rosalie Stoltz. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. <laughs>